Welcome back, everybody, to the Egypt Travel Podcast. This is going to be a unique episode because it's another interview episode where I sit down with a recent guest of my travel company, Egypt Elite, and talk to her at the end of her trip while we're having lunch together in Luxor about her impressions of Egypt both before she came and as she's on the trip and nearing the end of it. My guest on this episode, Whitney O'Halleck, isn't just an ordinary guest. She's a fellow writer like me, and she's traveled extensively all over the world. Egypt was the 59th country that she has visited, and it was the first country where, even as a highly experienced traveler, she felt like she needed the logistical help and local expertise of a company to make her and her husband's trip of a lifetime happen here in Egypt. So when we sat down together for lunch at one of my favorite restaurants in Luxor called Marsam, I just asked her if I could start recording our conversation. So we did the interview right there in Luxor. The restaurant is outdoors, so you'll hear a chorus of birds serenading us nearly the entire time, and there are donkeys and camels passing by seriously. But we had an absolutely fantastic in-depth conversation about travel planning for Egypt and traveling to and around Egypt from the very experienced perspective of someone who had been to 58 other countries at the time. I think she's up to 62 or 63 now, just a few months later, and who is willing to share her experience and insight and perspective with all of you. So here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Oh, okay. So Whitney, fellow Southerner in Egypt with me. Oh, my beer's about to spill up. Let me just tell actually everybody else real quick where we are. Actually, no, let me let you tell them where we are. <laughs> because I just literally said, but you know, I was sitting here talking and I said, um, we were talking about something that I was like, oh, this would make a great, you know, topic to, for other people to hear us talking about. And I just literally said, oh, wait, let me just throw my phone down on the table and hit record and let's let other people hear it. Why not? So where are we, Whitney? We're in Marsam restaurant. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yep. Marsam. 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 Yep. And I'm looking at camels right now, and we're waiting for a mint lemonade to come. And there's birds chirping in the background and pink flowers in front of me in a green field. Does not look like I'm in Egypt, <laughs> but I am, so. Yeah, and this, it's funny because people, what you're looking at now, people don't normally think of as Egypt, but yeah. like it's very typical for this part of Egypt. So Southern, rural, West Bank, Luxor, the South of Egypt looks like this. You know, you see palm trees and fields, farmers yeah. out in, see like there's literally farmers out there working the fields yep. out there, plants growing. So, and over here too, we're at a restaurant on the West Bank near the Valley of the Kings and Queens and they happen to have a little farm over here. So they have camels, they have horses, they have donkeys, actually rather healthy ones too, compared to the ones in Cairo. Mm-hmm. But you can actually go ride. You can go ride horses around. You can do the camels and even you can ride donkeys. Like, didn't Jesus ride a donkey into Jerusalem? He sure enough did. Yeah, you can ride a donkey like Jesus. But, yeah, Marsam, and, and you can even see monuments from here. You see the, the site. So right those are there? like 8,000 years old over there or something like oh, that? Probably at least, uh, <laughs> at least 3,000 3, to 3,500. Wow, like nothing. Monuments just sitting there in our view for lunch. Yep. But, yeah, so we're at Marsam, a really cute little restaurant on the West Bank. It's actually the only place, I think I was telling you this earlier, it's like slim pickings for lunch mm-hmm. here. There's Jorf Palace if you're staying there. Which but, we are, and I'm so excited about Yeah, I'm so excited to see your reaction when you get to the grounds today. But if you're not staying at Jorf Palace, they really don't like non-guests coming in for lunch. So if you're staying there, Jorf Palace for lunch and dinner, or Marsam, one of the only two places here on the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And there's one or two other places, like the rooftop of the Africa Hotel here, which is very much more local. But everything else is kind of like a street vendor. Yeah. So, and that reminds me, actually, have y'all had, have, have have you had any stomach bugs or anything since you've been here? Cause... Not since we've been here. Steve's, my husband's stomach is bothering him a little okay. bit right now. But mostly we've been, you know, eating local and staying healthy. So we've been staying at nice places and eating food from reputable places that John has recommended. Well, so. that's good because most people at some point in the trip get a stomach bug. Mm-hmm. Y'all have been here what, a, like 10 days, 10 I think. days. And most people by that point certainly do. So hopefully you won't get Fingers one. crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Famous mm. last words. I know as we sit down to a local restaurant with right. camels, <laughs> but actually Whitney, why don't you just tell us a little bit about 
your background and you're kind of unique as a guest for us because you're very well traveled. Well, we have a lot of guests that are very well traveled, but you document your travels really well. So you're very attuned to a lot of things, the details, mm -hmm. which has been really fun and working with you to plan this trip because most people, like I'm actually really surprised. Sometimes when people spend tens of thousands of dollars on a trip, they entrust us in a developing world country in the Middle East and often they don't even ask a single question or they Not don't they just one? they wow. just kind of you know like we want to go here okay here's an itinerary okay thanks booked mm -hmm. and you've been great because you care about the details and the itinerary and what it is you're seeing and whether or not it's better to do this versus this or this first versus this first mm -hmm. so why don't you actually just tell me a little bit about your background and why why Egypt how did you find us launch us into Whitney 101 so the first thing you need to know about me is I didn't start traveling until I was 20. And my first ever solo trip and my first trip abroad was to Japan to teach English for three months. Um, that was your first international trip? First international trip, first wow. solo trip. And my parents were, my mom was convinced I was going to get eaten by wild dogs. <laughs> my dad wanted to come visit. Um, but I grew up in a small town in Tennessee, kind of similar to what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, same here. <laughs> And um, I never really thought that I could travel. Like I never really thought travel was for me. I had always been really interested in other cultures and other places, but it wasn't until I was in my twenties that I figured out, oh, I could so totally do this and make it my job. So that's kind of how I got started was teaching English in Japan. And since then I finished college and got my first job. My first job was at NASA headquarters, correcting rocket scientists, because I was a proofreader. They love that. And after a while, it just got to just really the grind. It just got to be, I was a contractor. I wasn't a government employee. And so it was always kind of like, you know, between administrations, like a contractor can go to a site and they can say, you have to surrender your badge and you can't go up to your office. And like that was looming over me all the time. And I'd only mm -hmm. been there for three years and I felt like, you know, I, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Yeah, you know? yeah. So when I went to Japan, I wrote emails home. This was... 2006 so before blogging was really like a profession for people so I would write emails home because nobody I knew I think had ever been to Japan so they were all really curious and from there I just kept writing about my travels and eventually got my blog um, quickwittravel.com quick and wit. is it w-i-t or w-h-i-t -H like quick whitney wit w-h-i-t travel.com and I mean, it started out as like a diary kind of a thing because I was just writing emails home to my family about what I was doing. And um, but then it kind of developed into like, oh, well, this would be more helpful, like what to know before you go, 10 things to do or why you should visit a certain place. And so that's kind of where I am now. Um, <laughs> was your were your first travel blog articles about Japan? Is that yes, where you, they okay. were about Japan. Nice. And I had saved all of those emails. And so though all of those emails are in blog form. Oh, nice. On so the blog, pre, so I kind of have, have content it. ready to go. Yeah, like nice. this is where it all began, like where it started versus where it's going, kind of a thing. And so, to plan for a trip like this, to get back to your original question, to plan for a trip like this, like I know how to plan a trip. This is my 59th country to visit, oh, wow. and I have two more coming next month. Like this, I'm not new to this, but the thought of like the more I learned about planning a trip in Egypt, the more I thought I need help and I need somebody who is going to do it ethically. I need somebody who's going to do it efficiently. And I kind of stumbled across your podcast one day when I was folding laundry. <laughs> and um, Were you searching for podcasts or did it, was it recommended? I, you know, I just wanted to learn more about Egypt in general. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, gosh, folding laundry takes kind of a while. So I might as well be listening to something in the meantime. And so I just searched for Egypt podcasts and yours was one of the first ones that okay. came up and I read some of the titles and I thought, oh, how to plan your first, second and third trip to Egypt. Well, that sounds helpful. So I downloaded all of them and listened to all of them. And then I listened to all of them again. <laughs> and like I had researched maybe four or five other companies mm -hmm. and I was like right at the part where you push the button to book with at least three of these other companies and something made me be like, well, I'm not so sure about this because just the more I learned about just in general travel companies in Japan and Egypt, the more I thought this, this ain't right. You know, that's just, that's not really how I want to do it as far as the ethics and like not paying people mm -hmm. properly. And so once I found your website and, you know, looked at really what all of your itineraries kind of entail and the way that you do business, I thought, okay, this is, 
this is legit. This is the one I want to use. But I had looked at an all women's trip. I had looked at going with a bigger group. And my husband and I, we, we like to do our own thing. We like to pick our hotels. We like to pick the sites that we're going to go to. And going with a bigger group, you don't really get that. Right, much less flexibility. Yeah. And so you're here with your husband, Steve. Now, were you originally considering not going with him if you just did the women's group? Well, Steve does not like heat oh. and he does not like the third world. He's like, <laughs> I've done it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> Check. <laughs> Check those off the list. And my husband actually has traveled more than I have to more countries than I have. So he is also very well traveled. And so I thought, you know, if I'm going to go to Egypt, it's probably going to have to be on my own. Um, so I'm not so sure about that, you know, and, uh, but I found a company an all women's travel company and I was going to book with them. And he looked at the itinerary and he was like, that's 11 days. I don't really want to be away from you for 11 days. <laughs> so he said, if we went in the wintertime, then we could go together. And I said, okay, we'll go in January. And the rest is history. I, um, showed him the email exchanges that you and I had had and, showed him the web website and he was like okay it looks looks pretty good um just because with the other companies we wouldn't have been able to stay at the places we wanted to stay we wouldn't you know they kind of mm -hmm. rush you from place to place mm -hmm. a lot of time on a bus <laughs> do you remember the hotels they were tr they were going to put you in do you remember any um, of that they were very non-specific they were like mm -hmm. it'll be the Moven pick or something similar it'll okay. be the marriott or something similar mm -hmm. And like, I really wanted to stay at the old Cataract Hotel because mm, um, yeah. I'm a writer and to stay in a place where Agatha Christie wrote Death on the Nile and lived for a year was like really important to me. And I actually asked them about that. And of course I had to go through their channels to ask the right person and then it had to come all the way back to me. And they said, well, you can stay there, but it'll be at your own expense and we're not responsible for you while you're there. And so we were like, oh, okay. <laughs> so we are doing it on our own. But this was so much better to be able to pick what we wanted to do. And actually, I added in all of the like tipping we were going to do, all of the extras we were going to have to purchase if we went with these other companies. And actually, the trip that we're doing right now is less expensive than the trips with the other companies. I'm always shocked at how much companies have the gall here to charge Yeah. for group trips and yeah. for trips where tipping's excluded. And they're in four-star hotels. And like, I'm just shocked. Um, it doesn't cost that much to do a trip here mm -hmm. and it doesn't cost that much to do a trip here like lavishly, yeah. you know, with personalized attention, five-star hotels. Yeah. So they're delivering. That's the thing that I, that just gets me as I see them delivering such a low quality product mm -hmm. and charging way more. And people think that it's the best there is, you know, they just don't know. Maybe people haven't done the research or maybe they just don't know, you know? Yeah. Maybe I mean, Egypt is such a complicated place to travel just because of logistics, just because mm -hmm. of how far things are, because of the certain day, like the boats only go on certain days from mm -hmm. Aswan and from Luxor. And so if you want to do a lot of things, you got to work a lot of logistics. Mm -hmm. And it was so nice to just like tell you what we wanted to do. And then you made the itinerary as efficient as possible for mm -hmm. us, for our time frame. That's the thing that a lot of people don't realize too, is that there are so many of those details. Like you're talking about like the boats, the Dahabeas, for example. The typical schedule is they sail from Aswan to Esna on Fridays and Esna back to Aswan on Mondays. And so, so often most people, you know, plan a trip and they get to, you know, the end and they're like, okay, so we want to do, uh, you know, we've sometimes people are even like, we bought our flights, we got everything, we did our hotel reservations, non-refundable, and we have to find a boat that leaves on a Wednesday. And it's like, well, Tough luck. you should have... <laughs> We, we should have been talking about this long ago because no boats leave on a Wednesday, you know. Mm -hmm. There's so many things like that. Well, I'm working with a group that's coming next week, and they want to go to St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai. And luckily, luckily, um, they had very few dates they could do it. Wow, thank you. Oh, thank you. And luckily, um, it worked out for them, but they could only go on specific dates. And they could only go, for example, on a Saturday. And it's normally fine because Fridays and Sundays, the monastery is closed. There's nothing that tells you this. You just have to know it. And then on Orthodox feast days, the monastery is closed. And there's a feast day the day after they want to be there. And so it, it works out well that the only day they could do it 
the monastery happens to be open one day on either side of their day it's closed mm -hmm. and they wouldn't have been able to do it any other day so that's the frustrating thing about egypt is there are so many things like that that nobody tells you right and it's hard to figure out and even big companies and hotels and sites you would think if there's something major like that like we're closed on this day or we're open late on this day that it would be posted everywhere but egypt is just like there's a dearth of information about so much here mm -hmm. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's frustrating. We get that so many times too, where people who come here, usually it's, they confess this in the airport and the van on the way from the airport to the hotel when they first arrive. They're like, you know, John, I got to tell you, we've never had somebody help us plan a trip before. We're always independent travelers. We travel all over the world, but Egypt was just a different animal when we started yeah. planning it and realizing that we just couldn't figure things out or we couldn't do it, or it was going to be too complicated, or it was going to suck mm -hmm. up too much time. We just weren't sure, you know, there was just so much, such a lack of information that we weren't sure that this was going to work out and right. we don't want to risk it. But yeah, so that's actually, that's, that's very common. We hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. And then, so once you decided that you were in, once you found us, you listened to the podcast a couple of times. <laughs> I think that was about, what, six months ago? Yeah, more. I think so. I found your podcast in June, oh, and we booked in July. Okay. So, so. The, yeah, and so we're in now January, so, mm -hmm. yeah, like six months ago. So what, what have you been doing in the intervening six months? Were you continuing to research things, or were you just kind of like, okay, Egypt's booked for January now. I've got, <laughs> you know, like, on to the next thing. Oh, no. So... I do a lot of research. <laughs> I do way more research than I need to because I want to give the best information to my readers and I want to be as efficient as possible in telling them about it. Concise writing is good writing and not concise writing is not good writing is basically what has been drilled into me as a writer in school and, and even after. And so I've been researching like books to read before you come and podcasts to listen to before you come. <laughs> And like, what are the things to do? Like, what are these things that are on our itinerary? What can I learn about them in advance so that when I'm there, I'm not hearing it all for the first time. I'm able to sort of take it in and connect the dots. Like, give me the dots. And I, you know, once I'm there, we'll get them all connected. Um, just because when you're thinking about three, four, five, six, seven thousand years of history, it's overwhelming. It, like at some point it's like, well, that's just old. Like mm -hmm. that's just way in the past. But they were as different, you know, in 2000 BC, they were as different from the, you know, zero BC AD people as 2000 years hence. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we think we're nothing like the people 2000 years ago. Well, 2000 years ago, they were thinking, well, we're nothing like those people from 2000 years ago. And yet there were four or 5,000 years before that, you know, and it's all in Egypt. So yeah. to try to call down the overwhelmingness of planning the travel, I just continued to research and continued to email you and ask questions. We had a, a Zoom meeting basically just about safety because mm -hmm. that's the number one thing that people are concerned about with me and Steve coming here was our safety. But your podcast sort of showed me that, oh, this is like actually a safe place to travel. And since I've been here, that is the number one thing that Egyptians have told me is please tell everybody that it's safe, you know, that it's safe to come here. Yeah, safer here than I, I tell people I feel safer here in the back alleys of Cairo at night than I do in the middle of the street back home in the U.S. And I've always lived in safe areas generally, but in the U.S. But, you know, we have muggings and we have, you know, things that happen, random acts of violence. But here, that's that's so rare crime here is very rare yeah well it, it's hard for people to understand or, or think about on their own it's not obvious you know it's not obvious that crime here is rare because we always grow up hearing about the middle east being this wild west type of place lots of violence lots of chaos and we associate the middle east with bombings terrorism you know hating americans hating foreigners um you know hating anybody not like them but the reality is the complete opposite they love Americans here. They're so welcoming of foreigners. Um, they're so used to foreigners. They're way more used to foreigners here than we are back home, you know. I remember growing up, I mean, I probably met two or three people not born in the U.S. until I was like mid to late teens. Whereas here, you know, they meet people from every nationality every day. And they're so used to foreigners. I mean, it's been that way here for 5,000 years, you know. The, I mean, there, there are records of people from ancient Greece coming to see the pyramids as tourists. And there are records of people in the Middle Ages coming to see 
the tombs in Luxor and the temples as tourists. So they've been very used to foreigners for thousands of years. And, and they really do. I mean, it, it's funny to, because it's so, it's so contrary to our stereotype here. They love Americans. I mean, more than any other nationality because they love our music. They love our television. They love our media. They love our movies. They love our, our just lifestyle. And a lot of them, you know, most people want to integrate that. Is that a donkey cart? Yeah, a donkey in a cart just rolled on by. Um, of course it's a, Oh, it literally is a donkey in a cart. You, you weren't kidding. Of course it is. Yeah, but that's a, a big misconception people have about Egypt. And in addition to the safety issue, it's hard to imagine a place, for us, it's hard to imagine a place with almost no crime. Mm-hmm. And it's not that there's no crime, it's... The little bit there is, you know, the penalties here are so much harsher. Yeah, I was going to say, though, the punishment is much harsher yeah. than America. But also, what little there is, it's, you know, like domestic stuff. It's the, the, there's They're not targeting tourists. Virtually zero. Not even like in Rome, in Paris, you have to watch out for pickpocketers. You have to watch out for people robbing you. You don't have that here. You know, Egypt is so much safer than France or Italy or you know, even back home in the U.S. because crime, and especially crime against foreigners, is almost unheard of. It's rare. I mean, it makes the news when something happens, and it's a huge, huge deal. I always ask people when they first come here, did people think you were crazy for coming to Egypt? Everyone says yes. Uh, you know, everybody has at least a relative or two that tells them that they're crazy for going there, they're going to get murdered or kidnapped. But you two, you and Steve are well-traveled, but for the folks who aren't, like I'm always proud of them for kind of putting that aside Mm -hmm. and and being brave enough to to try something new. Yeah. Because, you know, Egypt is on everyone's bucket list. Everyone wants to go at least once. Mm -hmm. Have you been to any other places like this that you would consider are sort of universally the top of everyone's bucket list? So we've been to the Galapagos Islands. Galapagos is a big one. And that was one of the most fascinating trips we've ever been on. And that is actually the only other trip where we used a company Mm. to help us out because there are some places you can't go without a guide. And Mm -hmm. so it's just better to go with a travel company that already takes care of all of the guide stuff. Anyway, we were there for eight days and it was one of the most memorable trips that we've ever taken. I think my husband would also say that. Mm -hmm. And Easter Island, you know, see the heads. That was super cool. Another bucket list item. A big one on my bucket list was going to see an opera at the Sydney Opera House. Oh, nice. And so we did that. My husband took me there for, before we were married, he took me there for my birthday. That was a pretty memorable birthday. And then we went up to the Great Barrier Reef. So two bucket list items in one fell swoop. Um, Let me think. So Angkor Wat, Cambodia. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Really, I, I would love to go back. I went there and met up with a friend of a friend, but I told my husband that we really need to go because I, I think he would appreciate it too. But we're gonna have to, that's another one we're gonna have to go in January. <laughs> oh, yeah. I went in June and it was too hot even for me because they also have the rainy season, so the humidity is out of this world. <laughs> um, well, speaking of Angor Wat, that I think is the only religious complex in the world larger than the one you're going to see tomorrow, which mm-hmm. is Karnak. Karnak Temple was generally considered the second largest religious religious site in the world. I think it's definitely older than Angkor Wat, but Angkor Wat's slightly larger just because it's so... I've never been to Cambodia, but it's from what I've heard, it's so spread out. Mm-hmm. Very spread out. Yeah, and Karnak... And multiple... It's not just Angkor Wat. It's Angkor Tom, and there's like other temples like that are part of the overall complex, oh, okay. and so it's very spread out. Oh, wow. And all of it is just fascinating. There's like monkeys climbing everywhere. It's, it's like a, n- a whole other world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, that was just Kareem, the driver. So tomorrow, and I sort of went back and forth on whether or not I should talk to you and record it before you finish your trip or during the trip. But I think you're far enough into it now where I think you know Egypt now. You've seen a lot of Egypt. You've experienced a lot of We've Egypt. We've grasped the concept of Egypt. <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, you have sort of the, the grand finale coming up tomorrow because Karnak is my favorite site in Egypt. Maybe if you consider a temple complex as being one continuous area, maybe it is the largest. Maybe it sounds like Angor Wat and the other Angors. Mm-hmm are maybe distinct sites. Maybe this one's the largest site. It's definitely one of the largest sites you'll see mm, tomorrow yeah. and my favorite in Egypt. But other than that, so what have been your impressions of Egypt so far? Can you kind of walk us through your arrival, what your first thoughts were, and then maybe take us through your itinerary and what you thought about each step along the way? So the first thing I want to tell people is that Egyptians are incredibly kind. Everybody is helping everybody else. We were on a Felucca boat and we had to get kind of into a tight spot. 
and then getting out was kind of tight. And so all the other Faluka boat drivers were like helping push the boat and, you know, just everybody's helping everybody out. And I appreciate that. I appreciate seeing that in others. And um, Cairo is crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The only place I think we told you, the only other place that we've been that has a similar driving style is Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. We're just like, everybody is buzzing around and there are no rules except don't get hit. (laughs) And one of the first things that happened was like somebody walked very close to our moving vehicle, like consciously walked almost right into our moving vehicle because they were just waiting for it to pass so that they could walk across the road. And it was like, holy moly, that person is going to get hit. But you have excellent drivers and we haven't hit anybody yet. Fingers crossed. We still have another day. (laughs) So we did Cairo first. And, you know, I should tell you, Maha... It was our guide in Cairo, and on the podcast, you've talked about her a couple of times, um, and you've told me a few times, oh, people love Maha, she's so sweet, they think she's so great, you know, Maha is so sweet, and I looked at her the last day, and I said, Maha, everybody thinks you're so sweet, I think you're tenacious, (laughs) (laughs) because, like, in every museum she like put we're way too polite as americans as you have mentioned to me before she took us right up to the main attractions and we just started talking about it and like there's no line you know (laughs) so she she really took really great care of us and she was funny and she was kind and she was sweet but most of all she was tenacious yeah she's like she's like a mama bear Yes. Like she's sweet to her cubs, mm-hmm. but she's tenacious she's, to anybody in the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like anybody Fierce. blocking your experience. <laughs> we went into the market, and, and she was like, okay, so if I tell you it's a good price, that means it's not a good price. And keep, you know, keep haggling. And she said, if I say it's a very good price, that's a good price, and you can take it. But usually, they just go ahead and give me the good price because they know me and they see me coming. <laughs> so I got a great pair of earrings at the Cairo markets because of Maha's superior haggling skills. Nice. So in Cairo, your first day was pyramids, right? Yep. We did um, the full pyramids day. The full pyramids day. So we started Saqqara, at Dashur, Saqqara, and then the great pyramids. And, you know, it's like, you don't really want to start with the biggest thing, but I'm glad we did because, first of all, it kept us awake because mm-hmm. of our jet lag. So it gave us an excuse to stay awake all day. And then we slept like babies the whole first night. I don't think we woke up at all. Did you go inside of the pyramids? We did. I went inside all of the pyramids. My husband went inside a couple of the pyramids, and then he was kind of done. It's kind of hot in there. I was not expecting it to be so hot Ooh, yeah. inside. Even when it's really Even like, when chilly it's outside, outside, you come out of the pyramids sweating. Oh, yeah. But I went into all of them, and I got 60 floors that day, according to my phone. Mm. And my quads were screaming at me oh, for yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. And I do this pretty pretty fierce stairs workout, like on a set of stairs in a parking garage a day or two a week. And I guess I had been slacking because I was not prepared for the, yeah. <laughs> for the stairs and the pyramids. Stairs up and stairs down and stairs up again and stairs down again. Yeah. The one at Saqqara is easy. You just walk kind of straight in. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the one at Giza, most people don't realize, you do some hunching down, you do some climbing, and some more climbing, and some more climbing. And then you can stand up, and you do some more climbing, and more Mm -hmm. climbing, until you get to the center of the pyramid. I mean, you're walking to the center of the Great Pyramid. Yeah. So it's quite a ways up and quite a ways in. But did you think it's worth it? Do you think it's something oh, people should do? Oh, it was 100% do? worth it. Yeah. If you have the mobility to be able to do it, you should do it. Because you're not going to have your mobility forever. But were you expecting more art, decoration, painting, color on the inside? Or did you already know that it was going to be pretty bare? I already knew that it was going to be pretty bare inside there. I thought there might be something. But literally, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's like gray walls and a gray sarcophagus. Yeah, rock and a sarcophagus. And that's all. And then you can check the box and say you've been inside the Great Pyramid. Mm-hmm. What about the other pyramids? Did you think they were going? They were worth going in? Because most people don't go in the others. I thought it was worth it. I love history, which is one of the reasons that I wanted to come to Egypt for so long. So going into the first pyramid was awesome. Just to know that it was the first and it's been here the longest the and it's pyramid? still standing. Yeah. And then going into the Bent Pyramid and the Red Pyramid. So going to the Bent Pyramid and also to the Unfinished Obelisk is like the perfect reminder that one day your mistake might become a tourist attraction. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So you should keep trying. 
So it just like seeing the human progression from the mastaba, just the one step to then, you know, like the wedding cake kind of a look and then trying to get the straight sides um, and then going to ending with the perfect pyramids was the right way to do it. I feel like you should really start down there and work your yeah. way up. It helps people understand it chronologically. It helps people wrap their minds around it too. Yeah. Because one of the things that everyone struggles with when they come here is how do they do this? And we still don't really know. But at least seeing the older pyramids, seeing the mistakes, seeing the progression helps people kind of start to understand how it could have been done mm -hmm. and where it came from, you know, where the idea came from. The other thing that it helps with, and this is kind of a humorous thing, but I've had plenty of people that are serious about this question. It helps show that most likely aliens did not build the pyramids <laughs> because would aliens have messed up? Would they have built a bent pyramid or would they have done it right the first time if they were so advanced yeah. would they have needed to start with a step pyramid you know the training wheels or would they have been able to ride the bicycle the first time um aliens are people too john are they <laughs> <laughs> maybe but yeah well but the thing is if they're an advanced life form they should have like the bent spaceship and the step spaceship and they would have messed up on other things and maybe got the pyramid right the first time who knows you know i get all these other weird questions too people ask things like what's inside of the pyramids and how do we know that they're solid stone and that's another thing you can understand wrap your mind around the answer to if you go to those older ones because you can see pyramids collapsing you can see where the you know outer casings have come off and you can see what's inside or half of it's fallen down and you can see that it's solid stone all the way through. You know, most people who come to Egypt, especially on these big tour buses, these big pack, cheap package tours, they see the superficial stuff quickly. They go to Giza pyramids in the morning, the museum in the afternoon, and they take off. And so what you all did, I think is so important, which is you made time in Cairo, for example, to go see the older pyramids. You made time to go, you know, for example, you just came off of a Dahabeya. You made time for slow travel. Yeah. So you can not only not exhaust yourself and enjoy it more and appreciate it more, but you can see more and learn more. And it makes, for example, like going to see the older pyramids makes you appreciate the famous pyramids even more. Yeah. Understand them even more and enjoy that experience better. So after pyramids. So after pyramids, we museums? did our museums. We had okay. our museum day and we went to the old Egyptian museum in the morning. And that's where Maha helped us make a beeline for all the important sites. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the, oh, we went and had koshery at oh, Abu Tariq. Koshery is my favorite Egyptian dish. It was delicious. Tell people what koshery is because I always describe it one way, but I feel like I want to hear somebody else describe what koshery is. So it's two kinds of noodles, rice. Uh, garbanzo beans, tomato sauce, little fried onions, and then you can put hot sauce or like a vinaigrette kind of a thing on it. And then you mix it up and you eat it. And it's very filling for about an hour and a half because <laughs> oh. it's all, it's so many carbs. Yeah. Um, but also don't forget if you go to Abu Tariq, get the rice pudding. That's the only other mm. thing they do and they do it well. Yeah, Abu Tariq's the most famous grocery place in Egypt. And Abu Tariq himself was outside sitting next to his original was he out there? cart. Oh, wow, that's, yes. really, that's really neat. And like waving to his public, you know? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's like, a was it five or six floors of this three, restaurant? Yeah. Yeah. And they do it right and they do it well and they yeah. do it a lot, so. Yeah, it's definitely the most famous grocery place. My go-to kosher place has always been, um, just because of the neighborhood I've lived in, one called Kosher Il Tahrir. Mm -hmm. But the thing about kosher places is they only do kosher. You know, they might have a drink, they might have one dessert, but it's not like you can go to a kosher place and if somebody doesn't like kosher, you order something else. Yeah. There is nothing else. They're just kosher shops. But it's so typically Egyptian. I feel like unless you're allergic to carbs, then everybody needs to try it. Or maybe if you're gluten intolerant, but everybody needs to try it because it's yeah. filling, it's traditional, it costs three cents. Yeah. And it's good, I think. Did you like it? Yeah, it was delicious. Yeah. I had half of it for lunch and half of it for dinner. Oh, later yeah, that night. huge. Yeah, because yeah, it was massive. Yeah. And after Koshri, we went to the Museum of Egyptian National Civilization. Egyptian Civilization, thanks. Yeah. And that's where we got to see the mummies, including Ramses II, Queen T. And that was amazing because it's kind of gross <laughs> like to see these like 
thousands of year old corpses, but it's also fascinating because like you can see the details. Mm -hmm. You can see Queen T's hair. You can see the shape of their nose. You can mm -hmm. see their the wrinkles in their skin. It's just bizarre how well preserved they are. So it's fascinating in a, in a whole lot of ways. Um, and they have other stuff there besides the mummies, but that's yeah, it's the, the main attraction. I, I call it the mummies museum. Yeah. It was built for the mummies. They have a few other things on there, but it's the, I call it the Royal Mummies Museum or the Mummies Museum. Mm -hmm. The other thing I think is neat about that is that, and I think I was telling you this because we went to the Valley of the Kings today and you saw King Tut's mummy who is still in his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Yep. He's not in the Mummies Museum. But that when these people were alive, we would have never been allowed within miles of them. I mean, we were not worthy of being even in the presence of these god kings, according to them. And, you know, here we are, we can literally be up close and personal with them and, and microscopically examine the wrinkles on their face and the mm -hmm. hair on their head. You can literally take a selfie with King Tut because yeah. he's right there. Yeah, he's just right there in front of you. Actually, it is creepy when you think about what they are, but I love looking at the mummies just because it's like you're looking at real people. Mm -hmm. They still, a lot of them still look like real people mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Because the they were real people. I think that's the other thing about coming to Egypt. It's like, you know, if, if you go to church when you're little, you hear about Egypt and, you know, the Hebrews had to get out of Egypt and you see things about Egypt in the news and you hear about the pyramids all your life. But then when you see it, and it's real, like you're seeing a mummy that was a real person, who was a real king, who really lived. It's real. It's like real in a whole different way. It's no longer abstract. Now it's like, oh, it's that that I'm standing next to. I'm touching the pyramid. <laughs> it's not a figment of my imagination. That's the other really cool thing about being in Egypt is like it makes the past come to life. Even the mummies who are dead yeah. make the past come to life. Everywhere that we've been, I have felt that way. Like, oh, this is a real thing. You know, and like, you know it, but until you're here, you don't really believe it. I don't yeah. know, in sort of a weird way. Yeah. And then after Cairo, you went down to Aswan next, right? Mm -hmm. You flew directly to Aswan from Cairo. And then what did you do down there? And why did you want to do Aswan? Not everybody does Aswan, so like, what made you... So I wanted to do Aswan because that is where the old Cataract Hotel is, mm. where Agatha Christie wrote Death on the Nile. She lived there for a year and wrote Death on the Nile after having taken a Nile cruise. And I, so I've also published some books. And so like as a writer to stay in that hotel was a total bucket list mm -hmm. item for me. And they give a tour every night of the hotel. And if it's not occupied, you can go into the Agatha Christie suite mm -hmm. and see her view from her beautiful terrace and it's sit in her chairs. The chairs from the 1930s are still the ones that are in there. Like, I just think that's really cool. Um, they've been refinished and all, but it's the real thing. Mm -hmm. And staying at the Old Cataract Hotel was an absolute dream come true because it was the nicest hotel that we've ever stayed in and ever will stay in because there is no hotel that will ever top it for us. And you've been to 59 And countries? we've been to 59 countries. And my wow. husband likes to stay in nice hotels. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to stay in hostels and my husband is like, why don't we stay at the peninsula in Bangkok? So we've, we've stayed at a lot of really nice hotels and most notably uh, La Mamunia in Marrakesh was an epic fail for us because mm. they just treated us like trash. And that's supposed to be And that was at the time the, the, the number best. one hotel in the world, according wow. to Condé Nast Traveler. And they just treated us like absolute trash. I guess we just like look too young to be privileged enough to stay there. I don't know. But this was the total opposite of that. I'm always going to compare bad hotels to La Mamunia and I'm always <laughs> going to compare good hotels to the old cataract because the level of service. So we get into our room and we had been upgraded to the opera suite in the old part of the hotel and we get in there and the head butler is like showing us around. <laughs> <laughs> we walk into the living area and it's gigantic, like bigger than my first apartment in DC. We go into the bedroom, also bigger than my first apartment in DC. We look out at our balcony and then he shows us our second balcony. And then he shows us the bathroom and he kind of like off the cuff says, and you have a second bathroom for your convenience. And I almost laughed out loud. Like we have <laughs> two, two bathrooms, really? And then he said we had a third. <laughs> Almost, I almost laughed out loud in his face because I just was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> but he was so nice to us and he saw me in the hotel a couple of times and remembered my name, remembered that I went on his tour because he did the tour of the hotel and went into the Agatha Christie suite and everything. Uh -huh. And, you know, just the kindness and the level of service is unsurpassable in my personal opinion. Yeah, so. I love that hotel. It's my favorite in Egypt. It's historic. 
but it's a historic hotel that's really well done. It's mm -hmm. refined, it's elegant, it's classy, yeah. it's relaxing. But it it's, feels historic, uh, but it also feels like 21st century yeah, luxury. It, it, yeah, it feels luxurious. Yeah. It's like historic luxury. But I always describe it as like when you're in the sort of main lobby part and the restaurant and the bar, for me, I feel like I'm in the set of an Aladdin movie, mm -hmm. except much classier. Yeah, I don't even know. It, it's hard to describe it. Like you just have to experience the old cataract to really understand what we're talking about. But it's it's a it's a unique experience. It's one of a kind. I mean, I haven't experienced that anywhere else in the world. Yeah. But I'm so glad you got to stay there because it's hard to get people in there now. You know, we have most people book with us six to twelve months in advance, but we have a lot of people that book maybe three, four, five months in advance. And if people are booking six months or less in advance, it's sometimes now because tourism's bouncing back to Egypt, the hotel capacity is still low. Like in Aswan, for example, there's no other five-star hotels. Mm -hmm. It's that. There's a new one called Ben Ben that's nice, but it's on an island that's isolated. You have to kind of want to be away from civilization. But if people are booking two, three, four, five months in advance, sometimes we can't get people in there. So I'm glad you got to stand there and experience that. Oh, we were willing to move our dates to align with that hotel. That's like good, that was super important to me to be able to do that. And the only reason we were upgraded is because of John. So well, I, have, I think I was telling you today. I remember in July, and, and you said you all booked in July. In July is when they started sending me emails saying these dates in October and November and December are already sold out. And so that was July. So in July, three months later, October is the start of high season. They were already saying we have we are sold out for like 10 dates this month like 10 dates in november 20 dates in december so people need to realize if you want to stay in the nicest places if you want to get the best itinerary like i'm not a fan of booking early but you want something else you want another juice another no anything? i'm good okay, okay. But what were we talking about? We were talking about Aswan and hotels that oh, you have to book oh, early. Oh, right. So, yeah. So, if people don't book early, and sometimes people think I'm just trying to get them to book, you know, to pressure them. Because that's what another company would do. Yeah, it is. And, um, and that's what I would probably think, too. But, you know, I try to tell people, no, it's that, especially in Aswan. Aswan is the biggest place where there's only one nice hotel. And it is, you know, it has limited capacity and it books up early. And so if it's booked up, then you have to go to the next best, which is probably the, you know, now it's probably the Ben Ben. Mm -hmm. But again, it's on an island. You have to take a boat to and from it. But the next best is the Moven Pick, which is also on an island. Mm -hmm. And you also have to take a boat to yeah. and from it. And it's like four star rough around the edges, a little dated. So the cataract is really where people want to stay, hands down. And then even in Luxor, which is where we are now. There's not a lot to choose from. There's the Luxor Hilton, which is if you want Western style luxury resort. It's not quite five star, but it's like maybe 4.5 star. But uh, I feel like it's not doing it justice if I say it's four star, but I'm exaggerating a little bit if I say it's like five star because there are five star hotels in Cairo and it's not on the Cairo level. It's five star for Luxor. But there's the Luxor Hilton and then there's Jorth Palace, which is new and it's a very different type of hotel. Very unique, very locally flavored. Only 18 rooms, every room is unique on the West Bank, but other than that, it's the Winter Palace, which is a little rough around the edges. I don't like to put people there anymore because it's a little bit too run down. Although it's nice to go, if you have time, to, actually you're gonna be on the East Bank tomorrow. Y'all should stop by there at some point, go walk around the garden, have a look in the bar in there just to see the decor. Okay. It's very much like the Cataract Bar, very old world looking. But the Winter Palace is really just worth a drop by these days. I wouldn't stay there. Really, the only choices are Luxor Hilton if you want Western-style resort, Jorf if you want something more locally flavored but still upscale, and that's it for Luxor. So that's one of the reasons I keep telling people you need to book in advance because, like, for example, Jorf has 18 rooms, and when it books up, it books up. Yeah. I mean, only two of the rooms have two beds. You know, so if you need two separate beds, there's two rooms. And when it books up, you're out of luck. But yeah, there's just not a lot of options here. And so if people don't book early, or things are booked up when they book, then they're screwed. So today, speaking of which, so you're in Luxor now. We yep. just did a West Bank day today. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of the West Bank? It's hot and sunny over here. <laughs> and, it's, and it's January. And yeah, and it's still even hot. in January. And, but the tombs are amazing the color and the level of detail um especially in nefertari's tomb the little brush marks on everything you know, like it's so unique in that the color 
and the, the paintings have been so well preserved. And so that, that was well worth it for us in the Valley of the Queens. But seeing, I mean, seeing King, Tut, King Tut's tomb is like a bucket list item. Yeah. But it is small, but it's worth seeing, worth going to. We were definitely going to do it no matter what, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> even if we had to wait in line, which we didn't. And yeah, every place that we've been has been so different. And like you've mentioned on the podcast before, you know, you can get kind of temple and tombed out. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I'm not. I mean, I'm not temple and tombed out yet. Maybe tomorrow I will be. <laughs> but, but, you know, seeing the ones in Aswan and seeing the pyramids and seeing the temples in Edfu and Kamombo and Esna, they're all like there's something different about each one. Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoyed all of them. And speaking of which, I kind of glossed over the fact that between Aswan and Luxor, you were on a Dahabeya for three yeah. nights. So what did you think of that? Had you heard of Dahabeyas before I suggested it? Only in your podcast. Okay. And I think then it's only really in passing that you've mentioned the Yeah, Dahabeyas. I've never talked much about them. And I've never been a huge fan of Nile Cruises until... Dahabeyas are a relatively new phenomenon here in Egypt. Not phenomenal. I mean, they've used them forever. But for tourism and now cruising, it's relatively new. Mm -hmm. So I've never been a huge fan of now cruises, so I've always discouraged people from doing it. But now that Jaha Bay has become more popular, it's something that I feel comfortable recommending. Yeah. What did you think of it? It was definitely, it's been the most relaxing part of our trip because you're on the boat and there's nothing for you to do until we dock somewhere. <laughs> and which is kind of nice for us. My husband and I are kind of go, go, go travelers. Like usually our trips are really short and we want to see as much as we can. But with this one, because we had almost two full weeks, we felt like, you know, we're going to need some forced relaxation because that's mm -hmm. the only kind of relaxation we'll ever get is the forced kind. <laughs> so being on the Dahabeya after such a busy time in Cairo and then being busy again in Aswan and going down to Abyssimbol and all of that, it was nice to have a little bit in the middle where we just can kind of sit. And I, you know, I got some blogging done. I did a lot of pictures and Instagram stories and stuff. Like I was able to kind of catch up, mm -hmm. which I don't normally have time to do while we're actually on travel but it was beautiful like the Nile from Aswan to Esna is beautiful the sunrise every morning mm. we worked out on the deck of the boat every morning and watched the sunrise much better view than from our gym back home and there were only two other people on the boat with us and so it was basically like a semi-private cruise yeah. <laughs> and uh, Salah was our guide and he was fantastic he answered all of my questions like there was never a stupid question he's for me really to ask. brilliant he's great yeah. and he knows so much but when there's something that that we don't know yet he's like we don't know and in America, I don't know, is sometimes not an acceptable answer, but that's what it is here because yeah. nobody was there back then. So we don't know a lot yeah. of things, but the things that he would point out in all of these temples are things that if we were here on our own, we just wouldn't even know to look at mm -hmm. and certainly not know what it means. So that's probably the best part of the trip is having a guide at each place just because otherwise we don't know what we're looking at. You know, yeah. we don't know the significance because it's so much there like it's so, so much, much information like i need somebody to tell me this is the highlight this is why we're at this temple mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I i don't want to figure it out by myself and nothing's because I'm labeled probably not going to. Nothing's like nothing's labeled, labeled. Yeah. even in the museum the egyptian museum very few things are labeled and if they're if it's labeled like literally the label was probably from about 1945 mm -hmm. and that's the other thing people sort of either don't realize or underestimate about egypt is everything we know about ancient egypt I mean, we grew up learning about it. We feel like we've known about it our whole life. And we just, sometimes we just think, oh, everybody's just always known about it. But what we know about ancient Egypt, we only have known in the past 200 years. Because as of 1822, that's when the Rosetta Stone was deciphered. Hieroglyphics were deciphered. And they could finally start to read all of the hieroglyphs that told the story of Egyptian history. For 2,000 years or more, we didn't know what any of this stuff meant. We didn't know what happened. We didn't know who these people were. We couldn't even read the names of the kings, you know? So a lot of people don't realize when they come here that one of the reasons we don't know so much still is because it's still so new. We've known how to read Latin since the time of Rome. We've known how to read Greek since the time of ancient Greece. We've known about ancient Greek and ancient Roman history this entire time. Mm -hmm. But we just started learning about the history of ancient Egypt since we've been able to read hieroglyphs, which has only been 200 years. Yeah. 
And it's actually interesting because this, you know, well, this past September, September 2022, was the 200th anniversary of the presentation of the academic paper in Paris where the guy who cracked the hieroglyphic code revealed it to the world and the academic community. And it's funny, too, because the book you saw me reading earlier today was about the race to decipher the Rosetta Stone and, and figure out how to read hieroglyphs. So it's something that's on top of my mind now. And I, I don't know if I've told you yet, I'm working on another project about the Rosetta Stone that I haven't announced publicly yet, but it will soon. I'll, I'll tell you after this. You did this. tell me about oh, okay. it, yeah. Okay, yeah, other people will hear about it soon. But yeah, that, that's, I mean, literally the Rosetta Stone is the key to all Egyptian history because it was the key to hieroglyphs, to deciphering hieroglyphs and translating that language. So there's stuff we don't know still. And then, do you think, so you did a three-night Dahabea sale. Do you think that was just right, too much, too little? Because we have some other folks that you met this morning that were getting on. They're doing a four-night sale. Most people who get on do, if they do the Nile Cruises, they'll do like a five-night. Some people even do a seven-night. Some people even do a ten-night sale. I think that's too much, but what do you think about the three night? So three nights on the Dahabea was enough. It would not have hurt my feelings if we had another night, but I think that was the right amount, especially for a two week trip. I didn't mm -hmm. really want to spend more time on that and miss out on something in Luxor. Mm -hmm. But I think I actually asked you about one of the companies I was looking at offered a seven night cruise. So basically, instead of staying somewhere in Aswan, you stay on the boat. And so you're on the boat in Aswan for a few days and you do your excursions from there. And the appealing part about that is you unpack once and you see everything or almost everything. But after seeing some reviews of the boats and hearing what you have said about the big cruise boats, I, that was definitely not going to be worth it. But as for the Dahabea, that was the right experience for us. My husband and I like to have the more authentic, I mean, we like nice experiences, but we like authentic experiences. And that's both. It's like a luxury. They were using the same toiletries as the Sobitel. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it is I feel like it that is was posh. yeah for a boat our room was huge for a boat room <laughs> yeah boats boats are not known for their large spaces and now you I will say you have been spoiled because that is the nicest Dahabea on the Nile you can spoil me some more I don't mind <laughs> <laughs> well Cataract I think has spoiled every other hotel in the world for oh, you for sounds sure. like and I think you'll really like George Palace when you go there. So, but you know, if you stayed on a boat, like you were talking about, if you're seven nights on a boat, you did ask one in Luxor from the boat, you would have missed the cataract. You would be mm -hmm. missing George Palace. Yeah. And I think while the boat's nice, I don't think it's worth missing those two places and to I'd stay either, on it even more. Yeah, and I wouldn't have known about the George Palace unless you had told me about yeah, it. Yeah, many people so. don't. It's, it opened during COVID. It's new. They don't do a lot of advertising. They are full already. They don't need to do advertising. So, you know, Marina's even a little selective in who she allows to book there. I mean, you know, she'll be up front with people and say, you know, this property's not good for families. It's not good if you have mobility issues and can't climb stairs. You know, it's not wheelchair accessible. And she doesn't like the cruise boat types, you know, the cheap yeah. package holiday tourists that just go on the cruise boat, just go to her god at a rock from the Red Sea. She wants, and she'll say this too, like, she wants artists and creative types and travelers and, you know, she wants people that are curious and creative and she doesn't want, you know, the cheap suburban Thomas Cook holiday package travelers. Mm -hmm. So it's a really unique property that not a lot of people know about yet. And I mean, I keep telling her by next year, she's going to have to, you know, triple her prices because she's still charging nowhere near. I mean, she's booked solid and she's still charging the same rate she did when she opened. And I think in one year, it's, you know, she's going to be booked up like at least six months out, just like the cataract. And again, because she only has 18 rooms, they're actually yeah. building another, I think, four rooms, maybe. Okay. So she's going to have it. But then she said, like, after that, they're done. And it's going to have maybe 22 rooms-ish, 22, 25. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, that's a property that's going to be in high demand. And so I'm glad that you're getting to stay at it early. Yeah. You're getting to see it before it's even finished. But it's still a magnificent property even now. So we're actually heading over there in a few minutes because yeah. we're just finishing up lunch here at Marsum and finished up a dessert. And what else do you think people need to know who visit Egypt? I mean, you still have a little bit more to go. So you'll probably, maybe we should do an annex to this. But you have a couple of days left to go. And what else do you think people need to know about visiting here? So one thing that people, I think, need to know is the Christian history in mm. Egypt. Because, of course, now it's primarily Islam is the main religion. But mm -hmm. there's still, and actually Maha or maybe Aida was telling us it's like 
15 or 20 percent now is Coptic Christian and as a Christian it was very interesting to me to talk to Aida who's a Coptic Christian and I'm gonna be talking to Dina about it too because she's a Coptic Christian we went to the Hanging Church and we went to Abu Sagra, Sagrada? Abu Sagra? Abu Sagra, which is where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph stayed when they were in Egypt. They stayed in several places, but there's a church that was built over the site because of that. So that's not something you think of when you think of Egypt so much, yeah. but that was really interesting as Christians. And then also just talking to Maha and talking to Salah because they're almost unoffendable. Like you can ask them anything. They're yeah. just so kind and understanding that I'm just asking because I don't know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so from that perspective, it's, you know, ancient Egyptian to Roman to Christian to Islam. It's just Egypt has been through so much in every aspect of everything. But the religious aspect is probably most interesting to me and my husband, mostly because it's not what people think of and it's not what people talk about. We talk about the pyramids, talk about the ancient Egyptians, hieroglyphics, but kind of the day-to-day, -day, everybody's religion here is really important to them. It's a big and part of life live yeah. so harmoniously mm -hmm. for the most part everybody's friends with everybody everybody's yeah. helping each other out you know yep. so from that perspective it's also really interesting to us yeah one of the funniest things too is a lot of times when people show up to egypt they go from the airport downtown they start seeing their first mosques on the side of the road and then they start seeing these huge churches and people always tell me what are these churches doing here? I didn't, I thought this was an Islamic country. I thought they were all Muslim. People don't realize, unlike the neighboring countries here, you know, Libya to the west, Saudi Arabia to the east, um, you know, Sudan to the south, you have, you know, the other Gulf countries. Those are almost all, virtually all Muslim. Egypt has an enormous diversity of religion, of ethnicities, of so many aspects like that. But yeah, 10 to 15 percent Christian, native Christian population. You know, not immigrated in the past year, you know, 100 years, but original. You know, Christian before the Roman Catholic Church even existed. You know, the church in Alexandria was founded by St. Mark himself. You know, it came over from the Levant and, and established the, the Coptic Church here. And, and also the monastery at, I was mentioning earlier, I'm going in about a week with some folks who are coming and they're going to go to the Sinai, to Shoma Sheikh, but they're going to go to Mount Sinai while they're there. And St. Catherine's Monastery is at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's the oldest Christian monastery in the world. You know, and I mean, this is... It's crazy. It's like the OG. I mean, yeah. it can't get more original yeah. root source than that. Right. You know, what you mentioned about the churches in Cairo, one of the things that Teresi was telling us about on the way from the airport, he was pointing out, you know, there's this and there's this and you'll see this mosque and then you'll see this church. And I asked him, so is this like in Istanbul where the mosques were originally churches and then they were turned into mosques? Because I remember going into Istanbul, into the mosques there, and there's like a painting of Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this doing here? But it's because it was originally a church, and then it became a mosque. And he said, no, they intentionally didn't do that here. They yeah. left the churches as churches, and they built new mosques. Yeah. And so that, I mean, that's a fun fact I didn't know before. Yeah, it's the same thing where I live in Spain, is that many of, in Granada, many of the churches are square. You know, the traditional sort of layout for a church, especially Renaissance churches, is cross-shaped. Mm -hmm. And in Granada, a lot of them are square with the bell tower in a corner. And that's because they were originally mosques before the reconquest. And yeah, in almost every civilization, when they conquered another one, especially when they had another religion, they destroyed the old civilization. Yeah. They destroyed the old religion. They imposed their own. They converted all the buildings. And they didn't do that here in Egypt. I mean, they definitely had some tumultuous periods, you know, when the early Christians were heavily persecuted by the Romans before Christianity was made the official state religion. So they had, I mean, for example, St. Catherine's Monastery that I mentioned at the foot of the Sinai is named after St. Catherine, who was a martyr, who was persecuted by the Romans for her religious fidelity. But for the most part throughout Egypt's history, the Christian religion that existed here before the Muslims came was respected, it was preserved, it was protected, and that's the only way it's been able to survive for 2,000 years in its, you know, almost pretty much in its original form. I mean, most of the monasteries here and, and the, the religious sites were before the church split, you know, there was no Protestant versus Catholic. Yeah. There was no Orthodox versus, you know, Eastern versus Western. It was, there was just one Christian religion. And this was the original one here. And um, it's really unique to see it preserved and, yeah. and be able to, to visit it. Well, I tell you what, if anything drastically changes into your opinions in the next 48 hours, I'll you have to know. let us know. I think it's only going to get better for you because you're going to see what I think is the grandest temple in Egypt tomorrow. 
So we'll have to maybe check back in with and get your opinions in the last couple days in Egypt, maybe have an addendum to this. But anyway, thank you so much for sharing your experience because so many people come here and I love, I mean, the reason I do the podcast is I love documenting, you know, what's in my brain and like getting it out and putting it out there in some format for other people to be able to benefit from. And so I get even tired of just listening to me. So I know other people do. (laughs) So it's really important. And I've had so many people tell me some of their best episodes they've listened to the podcast are the ones where I've interviewed other people and they've heard other people talking about things maybe I don't think to, to mention or I take for granted and so like hearing you talk about what the experience is like fresh and new and especially I mean literally like you're in the middle of it right now at the end of it but it's very fresh for you and so this is going to be I know so helpful for people probably one of people's favorite episodes too because that's what they've mentioned with the others that have done uh, podcast episodes with me so thank you so much for doing that and be yeah. willing to, to put it out there and thank share you. it yeah Shukran. Afwan. So tell me again, quickwit, W-H-I-T, travel.com is your travel blog. And I know you're going to have a lot of posts about Egypt because I know you've been telling me, like, I'm going to do a post on this. Oh, yeah. I have like 35 blog posts planned. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) To release, you know, over the next few months. Okay. So that'll be a really good resource for people, too, because I know people who listen to this podcast also tell me that they follow EgyptTravelBlog.com. And so I know like another resource, especially with that much content on planning travel to Egypt, what to see, what not to see, what not to waste your time on, what's worth it, et cetera, is going to be really, really helpful. So quickwit, W-H-I-T, travel.com. And I'm all about Egypt, but you're about everything. So like, you're going to have a lot more than me on there for people to take advantage of. So. There's a lot coming. <laughs> good, good. And your 60th country is going to be Panama? Panama. And 61 is going to be Curacao on nice, the same trip. Nice, nice. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to reading more on it. So again, Whitney, oh, how, like, thank you so much for joining us you're on welcome. Thanks an episode. For having me. 